The following is a sermon from Faith Troy, a church located in Troy, Michigan. For more information and more audio and video content, go to www.faithtroy.org. In 1978, there was a famous study done by researchers at Northwestern University and the University of Massachusetts, and they asked two very distinct groups of people about their happiness. The first group they asked were recent winners of the lottery with prizes ranging anywhere from $50,000 to a million dollars. The second group was recent victims in catastrophic accidents, leaving the victims actually paraplegic or quadriplegic. And so in their survey, in the interview with each of these groups, what they would ask them is about their pleasure in everyday ordinary activities, about the happiness that they experienced through normal situations that you and I would experience every day. Things like, things like having a good breakfast, talking with friends, watching TV, being complimented. Now what might be surprising is in this research, what they discovered is that it was actually those who were in accidents who tended to be the most happy when it came to those everyday experiences, that they experienced the most pleasure um, out of anybody else in their research. And it was those who won the lottery that the things that, that they experience every day no longer brought them joy or happiness. And so in this research, they uncovered a lot of different ideas about happiness and the source of happiness. One of those is that the things that we most often think will make us happy often don't actually do so. The things that we most often think will make us happy have little impact over our happiness, which really creates a challenge when we are unhappy, right? Because we have these ideas of the things that we think should work, the things that we should turn to, the things that we should look to, but what we often find is that those things actually don't correlate to our happiness, which is probably also why when you study Americans that only one-third of Americans will report being happy, that most Americans aren't happy, Why? Because we have some ideas about what we think should make us happy, but what research will show us is that those things don't actually work to do so. Now, what's even worse about this is depression is actually one of the leading causes of disease in our world. So not only is there a correlation between the the lack of being able to find a source for happiness, but there's also a connection between our lack of happiness and our health. And so what do we do with that? Last week, we began this series called Happy, and the idea is to talk about happiness because God cares about our happiness. And so despite what you may, may have heard, that God actually does care about our happiness. God has something to say about it. God wants us to be happy. And while there, that doesn't mean if you're unhappy that God isn't with you, it does mean that God desires that. And he, and he even in the scriptures will teach us what it looks like to pursue happiness and where happiness actually comes from. Now, I also want to speak to some of you. Some of you might be in seasons where you just really don't feel happy, and I want to encourage you, because as we read from the Scripture and as we talk about what the Scriptures teach us about being happy, that is not to discount the importance of things like therapy and medication. Because some of us can, for, for whatever reason, the, the church has, has not always talked about this idea of mental health well, well. And sometimes what can happen is we treat mental health like this other category. And so we would never, with a broken leg, say we shouldn't go to the doctor and get that taken care of. Yet for some reason, we often will talk about, well, I'm feeling depressed, and the Bible says just be happy, and suddenly I just believe enough, and it gets all better. 
And so some of you should have, actually probably all of you should have a good therapist. Some of you might need some medication to help. And I believe those things will actually complement what the scriptures teach when it comes to our happiness. So if you could open your Bible to the book of Psalm chapter one, we're gonna dig into this text. If you're using the Bible in front of you, it's on page 843. Now, last week, as we began this series, Joe took us into one of the most important sermons of all time. That's Jesus' sermon, not Joe's. Joe's was just okay. Jesus, though, um, Jesus was the good one. And, and so Jesus, in, Jesus um, unpacked these statements called the Beatitudes, right? It's, it's in what is known as the Sermon on the Mount. And so Jesus makes several statements. And he says, blessed are those, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the meek, blessed are the merciful, blessed are those who are persecuted. And so what we learn in that is that there's actually a definition, the way we could translate those words, blessed are those, throughout that sermon is actually the word happy, happy or fulfilled. And so in, in essence, what Jesus is saying is that happy are those who are persecuted, happy are those who are poor in spirit, happy are the merciful. And the reason that is significant is because happiness is a result. Happiness is the fruit of something else. And so I want to carry that idea now into how we read Psalm 1, because Psalm 1 begins the same way that Jesus preaches in the Sermon on the Mount. In verse 1, it says, blessed is the man. In other words, happy is the man. Let me read it for you. Happy is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, or stand in the way of sinners, or sit in the seat of mockers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. Not so the wicked. They are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous, for the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. And so the psalmist describes, happy are those, and he, and he, and he makes a comparison. There are happy are those who don't do this, and happy are those who do this. So he says, happy are those who don't walk in the way of the wicked, or stand, or Sit. Now, now, I love what the psalmist does here because he's creating a visual for us. He's helping us picture in our mind the progression. And so it starts with walking, but then it slows down, right? There's walking, but then it moves to standing. And as it moves to standing, then eventually it moves and it slows down even more when it moves to sitting. There is a progression that starts with the walking, that moves to the standing, and then eventually ends up comfortable sitting and keeping company with the mockers. Now, now, the place that walking is, walking in the way of the wicked, that would be what, what you and I experience when we are trying to answer the question, well, what really makes me happy? Right? This is the way our world operates. We try to answer the question, well, what is the thing that makes me happy? And so when we think about school, when we think about work, when we think about relationships, often we are driven by that question, no, that is not the way that God operates, but many of us, as we walk in the ways of the wicked, what we are doing is we are hearing that lie and we are believing that the pursuit of happiness is actually what is most important. The challenge is that when you pursue happiness, you actually don't find it. It's actually in the pursuit of happiness that you tend to most often not find happiness. 
But this is what we do as we are walking. What, what are we doing? We are trying to find happiness. We are trying to answer that question. What is it that will make us happy? But what happens every time you try to answer that question? You don't end up there. And so in your, in your relationship, what, right, in a marriage, that, that you, if, if the primary thing is finding happiness, you don't find it. Because what do you do? You begin to ask the question, all right, what's going to make me happy? And then suddenly I'm not happy. Therefore, I need to get out. Therefore, I need to leave. Therefore, the person I'm married to is the problem. And so when we pursue happiness, we give up. But what would happen if instead of pursuing happiness in the marriage, we pursued the person? You actually pursued the relationship with the person that you're married to. And instead, what would happen? There would, it would be a change in behavior. There would be a change in attitude, a change in the heart, in the grace, in the mercy and forgiveness shown to that person. If you pursued the other person, maybe happiness would come as a result of that. But if you pursue happy, you leave. You give up. You just grow in resentment. Or in the workplace, this could, this could happen. You, you, you want to pursue happy, and so when the job is frustrating, when the job, it, it, when, when you aren't climbing the ladder high enough, what will happen is, is if you pursue happy, you begin to feel the pressure, the anxiety, the weight. You experience that moment like, I finally reached what I was working for, and I'm still not far enough. But what if instead of pursuing happy, what if we changed what we pursued? What if we pursued doing the work well for the glory of God, Maybe it would change the way we feel about that. And it doesn't always mean that suddenly the job is better, but it might change the way you feel about it. Or, or think about like those moments with your family. You know those moments, like you want that moment to last forever. You know what happens every time you begin focusing on making that moment last forever? You ruin the moment, right? Because you're trying to make it last and suddenly you're realizing that the moment's not gonna last and you are in fear of the moment ending and you miss the moment actually taking place. Why? Because what happens in that moment is you're pursuing happy instead of pursuing being present. See, when you pursue happy, you don't find it because happiness comes when happiness isn't ultimate. And so what happens in the way of the wicked, what we begin to do is we walk and we explore and we listen to the voices of the crowds that we walk through and we begin to try to figure out, all right, what is it that makes us happy? And then as we walk, what we'll begin to discover is that we begin to experience small pleasures that make us stop for a moment. And so this happiness, can we go to the next slide, please? See, in the walking, what will happen is in these brief moments of pleasure, we stop walking and we start standing because we begin to believe in what we experience. We begin to believe that moment of pleasure is what we're after. We begin to believe that that moment of happiness, that, that was what we were after. And so we walked and we were trying to answer the question, what makes us happy? And then we stop. We start standing in a place. And what happens when we begin to stand is we begin to hear things differently. Because when you walk through a crowd, you hear a thousand different voices and you, and you hear a lot of different opinions and experience a lot of different things. But when you stand in one place, you have chosen to hear one voice. You've chosen to hear one set of, of truths spoken to you over and over again. And so when you have chosen to pursue happiness and you stand in that place, what you've done is you have substituted God with something else. And when you have done that, it, like it, it will feel good for a season. Sin is always good for a season. It feels that way. But the pleasure is temporary, and the happiness is actually what you get robbed of. 
When walking moves to standing, and when standing moves to sitting, what happens is we let something else take root. Because we move, and it begins to take root, and what happens, we begin to get comfortable with it. We begin to sit, and it's a lot harder to move from sitting to walking than it is to move from standing to walking. It's a lot harder to get out of this place than it was to get out of that place. It's a lot harder to stop sitting than it is to change the direction you're walking in. But what happens is as that unhappiness takes root, we start to get comfortable. We start to just tell ourselves, this is just the way it is. This is just the way life is. This is just the way that I feel. This is just what my marriage feels like. This is just what my job feels like. And so we make ourselves really comfortable. And they know, you notice who the text says sits with you in that place? It says it's mockers. It's everybody who sits in that circle, who complains, who is unhappy. And what do they do? They point at everybody else. You know, why, you know why the people who sit do that? Because it's far easier to draw the attention on somebody else's failure than it is to deal with your own unhappiness. And so what the psalmist wants us to do is, is to understand how do we get out of this place? How do we not get stuck with roots that are connected to a pursuit that we can't actually find? And so the psalmist proposes something alternative that I would suggest is as simple as what if we flip that on its head? What if instead of beginning with walking, what if we started with sitting? What if the place that we began that actually would produce the changes, what if we started in the place of sitting? Because if walking is the living the life, if walking is going about work and family and friends and school, that's usually what you and I want to focus on. That's usually the place we jump to. But what if the place that we began was where we sit with God? See, what the psalmist describes in the way he describes this, he describes it as delighting. Delighting in the law and meditating day and night in God's word. What if that was the place we started? No, no, here's the thing about that. It's so challenging. It doesn't happen very easy. Like if I, if I look at my life, like this is actually really hard to do. Like I've, it's very easy for me to think about the walking. It's very easy for me to focus on all the things I have to do and the responsibilities and the tasks. But going to this place, that's hard to do. Now, if I end up on that place and I'm unhappy, that's easy to do. But to start in this place is really, really difficult because my alarm goes off at 7 a.m. and I don't want to wake up when my alarm goes off. And so I hit snooze. Eventually, I know if at 7.15, if I'm still not out of bed, we're not going to get the kids out of bed, and we're not going to get to school on the time, and they're going to lock the doors, and so I have to hit the little buzzer thing, and I'm not going to get in, and they're going to have to sign them in, and it's going to be a whole meltdown just trying to get into school. Like, it's not going to go, go well. And so get up 7.15, get in the shower, wake the kids up a few times, eventually get them downstairs. They should be old enough to get dressed, but they don't. Anybody ever experienced that? They still don't know how to get themselves dressed, even though they clearly know how to when we don't have to go to school. Eventually we get them out the door, we get to school, drop them off, then, we, then start driving to work. And as we drive to work, start thinking about, all right, what are the things I have to do today? What are the things I have to get done? Get into the office and, op and open up the computer and there's the list of emails and, and there's the meetings that you have to get to. And so go through the day and, and there's thing and after thing, after thing, after thing, and then get home and what happens? You gotta have food and you gotta have homework and maybe you can get a little bit of playtime. Eventually we start the bedtime routine, which is just as hard as the morning routine. And so we go through that and then but the kids 
get in bed and then they get out of bed and then they get into bed and they get out of bed. Suddenly they love us like they didn't the rest of the day, but now they want cuddles and affection and to talk about theology. Um, and, so, and, so, and so you go through that and then eventually the kids go to sleep and I finally get to say hi to my wife and then we fall asleep and it starts all over again. And what I have learned is that this doesn't happen on accident. None of us have time for it. Delighting in God's word won't happen on accident. And the challenge is when we don't, when we don't sit with God, we also stop enjoying God. And see, this has been hard for me to learn because, because, because I'm too busy for this. I don't have time for this. I have other things that are more important for me to do. That At least that's what I tell myself in my mind. And so I skip over this. But what I also then find is now when I try to spend time with God, it's like, I don't like it very much. This doesn't seem to be working. Like, I, I, mean, I mean, I've read this before, big deal. Like what? And so what I've had to learn is I actually have to relearn how to delight in God's word. And did you know, like you can actually, and you would, you would not be surprised that you do this in other relationships with that in order to learn to enjoy somebody, like you got to try doing it, right? You have to try spending time with them. If you haven't got much time with your spouse and it's been a while, right, you, you relearn some of those things. You relearn what you enjoy and what's interesting to you and what works for you. Some of us need to do that with God. There's Try something, figure out what works. And what works for you might be different than what works for me. What's working for me right now is setting a timer, putting my phone where I can't reach it, having a small portion of scripture to read and think about it, pray about it, and write about it. Now, for, for you, it might not be a morning, it might be evening. For you, it might be a Bible plan person. For you, you might be a journaling person or a doodling person. I don't know what it is, but what I do know is if you don't try, it won't happen. And so it's that place of delighting that can then move to standing. As we sit with God, what what happens in this place is we hear from God. What happens in this place is we begin to experience God. We get to spend time with God. And then it progresses to standing. And standing is the place where I not only have heard from God, but I also agree with God that I agree with what God has shown me in the time that I sat with him, that I agree with God's assessment of myself, that I agree that here are some of the things that I need to work out right now, that I agree that here are some of the things that I need to deal with, that I agree that I've I've fallen short. But I also agree then with God's assessment of me when he calls me child, when he calls me beloved, when he says that I am covered by the blood of Jesus. And so what happens is we move because we have sat, now we can stand in agreement with who God says we are. And what the psalmist describes of that person, he says that person is like a tree planted by streams of water. And so the tree, the tree stands, but the tree as it stands, it's taking root. Right, those roots are actually the thing that is actually going to eventually lead to fruit. The, 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 the roots is actually going to be connected to the walking, to the living, to the doing. But those roots are connected to the water, connected to the sitting, connected to the hearing. One of the things that, that in, in Psalm 23 it actually describes, when it describes the, the walking through the trials, it also describes that God makes me lie down. That he actually makes me lie down by the, by the, by the water. Like perhaps that's where some of us are at, that we know we should do that, but we just need somebody to force us. 
And that maybe in that delighting, these roots would begin to take place. Because without the source of life, the tree doesn't survive. And so you can try to go through life and you can try to find happiness. But we, we've already know that most people, when they try to find happiness, look for the wrong things. And so maybe if we try something different, maybe if we find ourselves connecting to the source of life, connecting to God, maybe it will sustain us in a way that other things can't. And so we stand with God and we begin to agree with God. And it's that that begins to change the way we walk. Because those roots, the text tells us, will produce fruit. It says that it yields fruit in season. Now that little bit can change everything if you leave that out. Because what many of us, what we want, we say, all right, I'm going to delight in God's word. I'm going to start a Bible plan this week, five days. I'm going to go five days in a row, and I'm going to be happy at the end of it. But what does the text say? The text says it yields fruit in season. And some of you have actually given up on sitting with God because you didn't see the fruit fast enough. So some, of you, some of you have been looking for that, that, that feeling to change and you have given up because your season never came. And so what the text wants to tell us is it will yield fruit in season, but don't give up on sitting. Don't give up on hearing who God says you are before the fruit ever even comes to fruition. Don't give up before the season changes. The season will change, the fruit will come, and the reason we know that is because the fruit isn't actually produced by us, it's produced because we are connected to the source of life. There are dry seasons and there are fruitful seasons. The way the branches look isn't what determines whether or not we can find happiness. There are seasons with joy and laughter, seasons with tears and grieving, seasons that there's a hot mess of tears and laughter all at the same time. But it's the tree planted by the water that in the end, the text tells us, there will be fruit. Now the writer also describes the ways of the wicked as, as the chaff that's blown about blown about by the wind. Now, this is another agricultural reference. And the, and the way that he des- describes it is, is a great picture of our pursuit for happiness. Because what he describes with the wicked is that, that when you would harvest grain in that day, you would take a pitchfork, and so you scoop it up, and you just throw it up. Right? And so as they harvest grain, they, they scoop it up, they throw it up, and the outer shell, the shaft, would, would, be, would blow in the wind, and the insides, the actual source of life, would be what is left and falls to the ground. And so the writer is telling us that when we pursue happiness, when we walk first and we pursue whatever it is that makes us feel better, we are like the grain that gets thrown up and it just gets blown about by the wind. Whichever way the wind blows, that's the way you end up. But then he wants to remind us, but what if instead you had roots? What if instead the wind didn't blow you whichever way it took? What if instead of the opinions and trends and feelings and sufferings blow you all over the place? What if the roots were in Jesus? See, the fruit of happiness 
flows from the roots that come in the sitting and the standing. Because what's happening in those moments is hearing from God. What's happening in those moments is God doing a work, a work that produces fruit. And that fruit, it tells us, is in its season. See, when, when the fruit is what we focus on, we wait. We wait and we wait. We wait for the season to change. We wait for our, way, our ways to seem clearer. But when our focus is in the delighting, God does something inside of us that in time will bear fruit. And I love how this section ends, and it says that the Lord watches over the way of the righteous. Because in our pursuit, in all of these moments, what is so easy for us to look at is the way. We look in front of us. We look at the path ahead. And how, how do I move forward? What's the next step? What does it look like? And what the text wants to remind us is that God watches over your way. It's not up to you to know the way forward. It's not up to you to know the path. God watches over the way of the righteous. And the reason that you and I are righteous is because Jesus does what this psalm describes. That Jesus sits in the place delighting in his Father. That Jesus sits in that place hearing from God, listening to God. And he not only hears from his Father, but he stands in front of his Father, agreeing with the mission that his Father has given him. And not only agreeing, but he allows himself to stand in that place condemned. To stand in that place as a substitute so that when you and I have substituted God with something else, Jesus substitutes himself on our behalf. So that then when he walks about his life, when he goes about the mission, he is able to fulfill all righteousness, to actually become righteousness for us. So that as we live our life, the one thing that can't get blown about by the wind is Jesus. The winds of life will blow in every direction, but Jesus' love and presence doesn't waver. And so what if you and I, instead of pursuing happy, pursued Jesus? What if we began in the place where we sit and listened to Jesus? And what if we trusted that God would do what he says he will do, that in time that will produce fruit, a fruit that isn't generated by our own effort, but a fruit that comes when we're still. See, I have a feeling that if we begin in that place, what God will do is he will not only produce fruit, but he will teach us how to delight and he will teach us how to love and he will change who we are. I want to close with a prayer and then we will spend our time preparing to celebrate communion together. Jesus, we thank you for what you do for us. We thank you for your love. We thank you for your sacrifice. We thank you that you have mercy on us when we fail to delight, when we fail to love. I pray that you would teach us to delight, that you would teach us to sit, to listen, to hear from you, and not only to hear from you, but to agree with you. That you would produce happiness, that you would produce the fruit in our life as we live Jesus, I pray that you would forgive us for the times that we fail to love you with our heart, our soul, our mind, that you would forgive us when we fail to love our neighbors as ourselves. 
that you would forgive us for the times that we pursue happiness as ultimate. Jesus, I pray that you would change us, that you would hear us now as we confess these things personally to you. The promise of Jesus is that he who knew no sin became sin for us. So because of him, that you and I would become the righteousness of God. Jesus speaks to every one of us this morning that your sins are forgiven. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.